encourage you to open up your Bibles this morning and open them to the very front, to Genesis chapter 1. So we'll be reading, uh, I'll be reading, selective passages here from Genesis 1 through chapter 2 and chapter 3 as we're focusing on um, the human condition. And it all begins at the beginning, the beginning of all things, at the creation so Genesis chapter 1, our uh, reading will we'll begin with verse 26, for this is the word of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then we're going to skip over to chapter 2 and verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And we'll go down to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord God, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is the word of the Lord. And let us pray. We give you thanks, O Lord, for your word. And we ask you, Lord, that you would come and you would help us this morning. Lord, that we would understand the truth of what you have proclaimed here through your word. And Lord, may our lives be more and more shaped according to what you have said. And Lord, we pray for our other brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world, gathering together on, on this your day, the Lord's day, to hear your word. Father, we pray for the free church in Oakland, Nebraska, and we ask, Father, you would be with this congregation, that you would help Pastor Mike as he preaches your word today, and 
Continue, Lord, to uh, build up this congregation, to represent you in Oakland and the surrounding community, Father, to be faithful to your word, to love their neighbors, Lord, and to represent you well there. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning we're going to meditate on the perplexing puzzle that is humanity. We all know that human beings are capable of so much good and have done so much good in our world. It's not hard at all for us to think of people that have blessed us, that have been so good to us, people that we thank God for as truly special people. At the same time, we can also just as easily think of people who have not been kind to us. People who, if we were honest, we wish were not a part of our lives. And of course, if you've ever lived in the same house with other human beings, anybody? Well then, you have seen both sides of this, both sides of humanity. You've seen the best of humanity in those you love, as well as a bit of the dark side of humanity in each of those people. So each of us is capable of doing so much good in our world, but we're also capable of having been guilty of and doing so much evil. It is the puzzling perplexity of the human condition. One author that I read put it this way, we human beings are a mystery to ourselves. We are rational and irrational, civilized and savage, capable of deep friendship and murderous hostility, free and in bondage, the pinnacle of creation and its greatest danger. We are Rembrandt and Hitler, Mozart and Stalin, Ruth and Jezebel. And I would add for us here in Nebraska, we are Tom Osborne and Bo Pelini. <laughs> the human condition is the subject of Article 3 of our Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith. It reads like this. We believe that God created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed? So Genesis 1 through 3 reveals the story of our origins, the origin of humanity and the origins of our trouble. So our main theme from these passages this morning is this, that all humanity has the great honor of bearing God's image. And that is a great honor. We have the great honor of bearing God's image and the shame and guilt of rebelling against him. So first, we were created in the image, in the image and likeness of God. Uh, selected passages uh, for this that are listed on your outlines that were in your, your, your bulletins there for number one here. We're created in the image and likeness of God. Throughout Genesis chapter one, we are being shown the origins of all things. In verse one, we see that the eternal God was there at the beginning, and he, God, initiates the creation of, of all that there is in the heavens and the earth, which is everything that there is. Then 
as we go through chapter 1 of, of Genesis 1, the cadence moves on. That, that familiar cadence, you know, God said, let there be, and there was, and God saw that it was good, and there was morning, and there was evening, and on it goes like that for six days. On the sixth day, we reach the climax or the high point of the creation account in Genesis 1. And, and Genesis 1 makes it clear, this is the, the, the climax. There is a pause in the cadence. And we hear God speak within heaven with the other members of the Holy Trinity. And he says there in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. And verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now when we read the word for man here in verse 26 and 27, it is translating the generic Hebrew word for mankind or for humanity. So it is an inclusive term. God is not just talking about creating one man in his image. He is referring to to all mankind. All humanity has been created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, This, of course, is a much different narrative than what our culture uses to tell the story of, of the origins of mankind. Notice that God says that humanity is to have dominion over all animals there in verse 26. We are not just one of the animals that by chance happen to evolve into creatures who could walk upright and think and reason and create and have a sense of morality. No, our origins are that we were created by God, made in his image, and that all of creation was according to his design. We have our value and dignity based upon our being made in God's image. Not just because a million chance events happened in order for humanity to evolve out of the primordial soup through a bunch of different stages of development until we finally evolved into creatures who weren't covered with body hair and could reason together and take care of ourselves and create things like the iPhone. Yes, Christians take what the Bible says about the origins of humanity by faith. But know this, it takes a lot more faith to believe in all the chance events that would have had to happen just right in order for the secular version of the origins of humanity to be true. So why are human beings so different from the rest of creation? Why are we rational beings and able to think and seek out the truth? Why don't we see the animals trying to study and do tests in order to discern their origin story? Why why are humans moral beings, able able to make judgments about what is good and what is evil? Why, Why don't we see the animals having their own police officers and law courts and judges and jails to hold you know, all the animals whom they deem to be guilty of crimes against the animal kingdom. Why is that something only humans do? Why are we such social beings able to, to, to live with and get along with each other, forming communities and cultures with services which, which help to serve the various needs we have like hospitals and nursing homes and grocery stores and churches? Why don't we see the animals doing similar things? Why are humans such artistic creatures? Why don't we see squirrels painting 
or dogs taking pictures, or horses writing novels? Why don't we ever see animals gathering around the Grand Canyon and taking selfies of themselves and marveling at the beauty of such an incredible wonder of the world? Why are human beings the only life forms on this earth who gather together to worship on Sundays in churches, or actually, which happens more often, gather together to worship on Saturdays in huge stadiums all over our country? The answer, of course, is that human beings are the only creatures who have within them the very mark of divinity. All humanity, male and female, were created by God in the image of God. This, this relation that we have with God is our crowning glory. It is the central truth about us. Now, an image is something that is made to be like something or someone else. I was down in, in Lincoln uh, for a meeting this past week, and I drove by Memorial Stadium, and I saw the statues uh, of uh, Brooke Berenger and Tom Osborne there standing in front of the stadium. Those, those images were made to look like these two legends of Nebraska Cornhusker football. They were, they, they were made to memorialize them and honor them. And if you are familiar with Nebraska football, every time you walk by those statues, you will think of Brooke Berenger, who played for Coach Tom Osborne and was a valuable member of the 1994 and 95 national championship teams, and then was tragically killed in a plane accident in 1996. You will also, of course, remember Coach Osborne, the legendary coach who led the Huskers into, in their glory days of the 1990s. And similar, similar to those images, you and I are made in the image of God. Now, yes, you know, we're formed out of the dust of the earth, but, but yet formed by the hand of God like a potter would form a clay pot. And then as Genesis 2-7 shows us, so chapter 2, verse 7, God breathed into that first man the breath of life. And that man, known, known as Adam, which is a Hebrew word for man, he was, he was made to display who God is to the world. Whenever we see or think about each other, one truth should always be in the back of our minds. We are to remember God. We are to know that each person was made to help us to remember and honor him. And thus we must honor each other. We must treat each other with respect and dignity because we were made in the image of God, because of who we represent. And because we are made in the image of God, we ought to always honor other people appropriately. You know, for, for we honor God by honoring his image. Imagine if someone decided, rather foolishly, to vandalize or to destroy the Tom Osborne and Brooke Berenger statue at Memorial Stadium. Why would that be such a big deal to Nebraskans? Those statues aren't really Beringer and Osborne, right? I mean, they're, they're just made of stone. Not really them. Yes, but it's who they represent. It's what they represent. If someone disrespects those images, they are disrespecting the people they represent. And it is the same for human beings. If we are 
if we are uh, disrespected or if we disrespect or, or dishonor or treat other human beings harshly, it is as if we are disrespecting and dishonoring God. All human life, from the oldest to the youngest, from adults in the prime of their lives to, to babies still developing in the womb, from the wealthy to the poor, from the gifted to the mediocre, from boys to girls, dark skin or lighter skin, from athletes to artists, there is nothing more valuable in all of creation than human life, no matter who that human life is. So therefore, we must take all human beings infinitely seriously, including yourself. Secondly, we were created to image God in his creation. We're created to, to image God in his creation. Again, from various passages here in Genesis 1 and 2. In, in these creation accounts, we are also shown that God had a, a purpose for humanity. Unlike the animals whose purpose is not explicitly revealed, we were called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish, the birds, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The plan for the first man and woman that God created was, of course, to have babies. And then those babies were to grow up and have more babies and so on and so on, to, to multiply Humans were then to spread out over all of the earth and fill the earth with civilizations having dominion over the earth and over all the animals of the earth. The word, therefore, dominion refers to a, a kingly rule. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, we see that the Lord, being even more specific with the first man as what humanity's role was on the earth, look at verse 15, again in chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So we see um, right here we are shown that, that work is not a punishment. Work is not a part of the curse of sin upon the world. Work, work is good. We were made to work. We were made to labor. Adam, the first man, was tasked by God to work, to tend to the garden that the Lord God had, had placed him in like we are all called to tend and care for the peace of the world which the Lord God has, has given to you to care for. The other word here, there is keep. Keep, which has a sense of protection, uh, to watch over the garden. Since man was made in the, in the image of God and God then placed man in the world that he created, man's purpose was then to, to image God to the world. And what I mean by that is, Man was to represent God in the world, to image him. You know, in the ancient world, archaeologists have discovered that uh, kings, kings who ruled over uh, a large territory um, back in the, in the ancient times, would, would, would erect images of themselves in the outer reaches of their land, or the land that they held dominion over. And when people from neighboring kingdoms would enter the land which the king had dominion over, they would, they would soon see and recognize the image which the king had set up. This would immediately let them know whose land they were in. By looking at the image, that they, they would know the one who ruled over that land. So humanity 
was called to have a similar purpose. We were to represent God in the world that God had made. We are to remind each other of whose land we are in, of just who it is who rules over the world. We are to to image God, to, to show each other who God is. We are like the king's ambassadors, exercising dominion over his creation in his place, yet, yet, yet always re- remembering that we represent him. It is his world. These are his animals. This is his creation. This is his kingdom. It's not ours. It is his. And to make this clear, God gave the first humans some clear instructions that they were to make sure that they knew and that they were to submit to his rule over them and his rule over the earth. We find those, those instructions of verse 16 and through 18 of chapter 2. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the, of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it is, not, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So your God is very generous with his kingdom. He allows all of humanity to enjoy whatever his kingdom produces. Yet there was one prohibition. They could eat from any tree in the garden except for one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord is clear as to why. If they ate from that tree, the Lord says, they would surely die. The knowledge which this this tree would provide was knowledge which humanity was not to have. They were to submit to their creator. They submit themselves to to his rule over them, their, their king, whom they represent in the world. They were to depend fully upon him. And he had promised to provide for them. But if they grasped for this knowledge, this knowledge of good and evil, they would in essence be grasping for the right to decide for themselves what was good and what was evil. They would be rejecting God's rule over them and turn away in order to live by their own rule. And this would be deadly for them. They they, they would change from living to point others to God to rather living to point others to themselves. They would change from having the Lord as central to their lives to pushing him aside and making themselves central. From living to please him to living only to please themselves. And and unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. It was like turning our backs on the glory of being made in God's image to representing him in this world to something completely different. Something with ourselves at the center. And lastly, we see that we chose to turn away from God and brought shame and guilt upon ourselves. This passage uh, here, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 that I read earlier, this passage is what is commonly known as the account of the fall of man, or more simply, just as the fall. It is the fall from man's high and glorious position of being in fellowship with God to being alienated from him separated from God. We have quickly gone from God forming the man out of the dust of the earth 
then forming the woman out of a rib from the man. God being in such close fellowship with man that he leads the woman to him and essentially is the only guest at the very first wedding which ever took place on the earth to walking through the garden and having the man and the woman trying to hide themselves from his presence. This is a fall away from glory into shame. Mark Twain wrote that uh, man is the only creature in all of creation that can blush. And he's the only creature that needs to. We really are the only creatures who, re- who realize that we are not who we should be. And that discrepancy is the cause of great distress to us. We are shown how that happened here in these first eight verses of chapter 3. Verse 1 begins with a description of the serpent. We quickly discover that uh, what the serpent's mission is here. He has come to the woman in order to tempt the woman to sin. He does this in three main ways. First, he casts doubt on the word of God. He asks a question regarding what God had said, which causes the woman to question God's word in her mind. Look at verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see how his question makes God's word seem restrictive, even unfair. Notice also how, how Satan questions God's character here. We are, we, we, we are seeing a glimpse of Satan's strategy here to lead people away from God. If he can get us to question God's character, that maybe God really isn't good. And at the same time, if he can cast doubt in our minds on God's word, that maybe his word isn't so trustworthy after all, well, then he's got us. He's got us. What he said next to the woman led her even further down the road to sin. Notice how he blatantly attacks God's character, basically calling God a liar. And then he outright lies in order to lead humanity astray and into sin. Verses three through five. But God said, this is the woman, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So in order to tempt humanity to turn away from God, Satan the tempter attacks the truth. He casts doubt on God's character, implying that their creator was not someone that they could trust. And our first parents chose to trust instead a creature rather than their creator. They chose to reject God's word and receive the word of Satan. They refused to to, to just be God's representatives on the earth, and they wanted to be God's themselves. They wanted to decide for themselves what was right or wrong, what was good or evil. Rather than trusting God and submitting to his rule, and where does this lead them? What happens as a result of this? We will focus much more attention on that deadly consequence of the fall of man upon our world next week. But today, let's just consider what God's word shows us in these verses. Look at verses six through eight. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make to, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Before they rebelled against God, they had an intimate fellowship with one another, without shame. Nothing was hidden. After they sinned against God, what happens? Now they feared one another. They were ashamed of themselves and believed that the other person whom before they had fully trusted was now a great threat to them. And that's what sin does to us, friends. It it causes us to fear one another. It leads us to distrust one another. And we have probably all experienced being hurt by others, but we have never been hurt by someone who wasn't already hurt themselves by the shame that sin had brought upon them. Worst of all, though, we see that our sin led us to separate ourselves from God. Notice here that it is the man and the woman who do this. God comes to them. God comes looking for them, but they in their sin and shame, separate themselves from God. He is holy, they know that, and they can't stand to be in his presence, so they hide. And as we look around our world today, we can still see this. So many people trying to hide themselves from God, trying to escape his gaze, going to dark places and residing there, trying to suppress the truth that he really is there, that, that, that he really is God and that he is pursuing them. So where is the hope in all of this? Well, I hope you can clearly see that, that hope is most definitely not in us. Hope does not lie within humanity. Hope can only come from outside of us, from heaven. We are all in need of being rescued from our sin and our guilt. We are are all in need of being reconciled to God and to each other. We are all in need of being renewed from the death that our sin has brought upon us. That hope, that hope came for us from heaven in another man, another Adam, the son of man the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, like our parents, was also tempted by Satan. He was also tempted to distrust God's word. But he responded by fully trusting in what God's word says. And he overcame the tempter for us. He walked in fellowship with God throughout his life and ministry, never turning away from God once in order to pursue his own way or his own glory. And even though he never sinned, he died 
taking upon himself the guilt and dreadful shame of our sin. He was cast out of God's presence. God turned his back on him, but he rose from the dead and now offers to every sinner rescue, reconciliation, and renewal for all who would look away from themselves and all the things that they're trying to do, make themselves right, to fix themselves, to, to, to make life easier to live, to just look away from them, from their sinful selves and trust in him, trust in Christ. But in order to do that, you must do the opposite of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. That is, you must give up the right to determine for yourself what is right and wrong. And you must submit yourself to God's rule and his word. You must stop putting yourself first and instead always put first what pleases the Lord. In other words, you must return to your intended purpose to represent him within this broken world. And he has promised that he will help you do that. In fact, he will come to live within you to empower you to do that, to empower you to live by faith in him. There is a great, great old hymn that calls us into this, that recognizes who we are, who we became in our sin, and calls us into this life. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, joined with power. Come ye burdened, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Will you go to Jesus? He will embrace you in his arms. Come today, repent of your sin, of living your life in opposition to God's word, and give your life to Jesus. Ask him to be your savior. And follow him as your Lord. Because in the arms of our dear savior, Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help each one of us. I don't know where each one here this morning is at in their relationship with you. Maybe they have been following you for years. They, they know and they love you and they are still enjoying growing in the knowledge of you. Lord, I thank you for the grace you've shown to those brothers and sisters. But Father, there may be some here that they have been living according to their own ways. Maybe they have been calling themselves a Christian and they come to church, but in their hearts, they are their own saviors. They are their own lords. They decide for themselves what's right, what's wrong. They live by their own code. I pray that you would convict their hearts that that way leads to destruction. That they will not be in your kingdom, enjoying eternal life, unless they repent of that and turn to you this morning. Unless they come to Jesus. They don't have to be fixed. They don't have to be clean. 
Help them to recognize that they are sinners, but that you are calling them by your grace to come. You will change them. You will transform them. You will make them your children, and you will give them life. So, Lord, may they come. Bring them, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.